Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Krulak community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, any agency of the U.S. government, Norwegian Defense University College, or their Norwegian government. So this is a special episode we're bringing to you today because we get to sort of talk to one of our, our in-house personnel here uh, who've been with us for a while and finally get a chance to sort of sit down one-on-one -on -one and talk with him and learn more about what uh, what he's been doing here and what he's working on. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Nior Vega. He is here as the Chair of Arctic Security at Marine Corps University, but he's visiting us from Norwegian Defense University College and been here for a little more than a year, I think. Six months. Six. Only yeah. six months. Which is a, oh, we, but you did visit us. Sure, I've been engaged, yeah. you know, with different research projects before. Yeah. Um, so in those six months, we've, we've uh, uh, sort of established um, some very positive and formal connections, which are looking to blossom into a, a formal connection between us in Norwegian Fence University College. So I uh, appreciate you taking the time to sit here and talk. And we're going to pick your brain a little bit about what you've been working on, as well as some of the, uh, the security perspectives in the Arctic and High North region. They're obviously of top priority for Norway, but a, a, an emerging area of concern for the United States and the larger NATO alliance. So, but before we get into that, uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about your professional background and your, your position here, Chair of Arctic Security, what you're doing here at Marine Corps University. Sure, thanks. Yeah, so my name is uh, Njord Vegge. I'm a professor at the uh, Norwegian Military Academy. That would be the equivalent to West Point here in the United States, which is a part of the greater Norwegian Defense University College. And I'm a political scientist, uh, a professor, and I've been working a lot on, on international relations, especially the Arctic, for, uh, for a decade. And um, I took my PhD at the uh, University of Tromsø in the far north of Norway, and has had an interest in you know Arctic issues. So uh, the last uh, few years, <clears throat> when I've been working at the Norwegian Military Academy, uh, Defense University College, I thought you know I'll I'll really try to go a little bit more into the specific of the military power dimension of the Arctic, uh, air, land, sea power. You know how does that matter? And when I came here to uh, the Krulak Center and Marine Corps University, I, I really want to you know to understand better the American component of NATO's uh, defense of the northern flank. Uh, you know, you know uh, the Marine Corps has been very important for Norway for very many years, and we have a very deeply established uh, cooperation. So uh, when I came here um, about uh, half a year ago, I really tried to you know dig into that, utilizing my opportunities here as a professional political scientist working on security in this uh, very exciting environment. Yeah, well, it's been fantastic to have, you know, as I said, area of emerging concern for the United States and NATO. And it's been it's been great to have, you know, a uh, you know, first person perspective on on what the, the concerns are up there. So and so sort of with that, well, before we get right into some of the, um, the specific subject we're going to talk about, you were generous enough to provide a few pieces you've been working on that talk about some different aspects of security out there that that uh, um, you've been working on, but also sort of highlights what is going on there and what still needs to be done. So 
Um, so for, for the benefit of our audience, could you maybe summarize, you know, from, you know, Norway's perspective, like I said, this is a area of primary concern because it is your, your home, your backyard. What are, your, what are your main national security concerns up in the Arctic High North region right now? Sure. So <clears throat> I would say in the, in the big picture, uh, the Arctic is a relatively uh, low tension, stable region. It has been, um, comparatively speaking, uh, pretty yeah, stable. A lot of cooperation have been taking place here internationally. So um, uh, there's no need to uh, to think of a, like a, an emerging crisis in the Arctic. However, um, the Arctic is a part of the global global picture. We have a war in Ukraine. Uh, the relationship between NATO and Russia is is, is really bad, uh, and uh, it's hard to you know have a, a time you can compare with when it comes to like the the sort of like uncertainty for the future so even though there's no imminent threats necessarily uh, against let's say Norwegian sovereignty or NATO as an alliance in the north uh, the greater sort of um, picture of instability war in Europe uncertainty about the future including you know where's Russia going uh, that is also impacting uh, the situation in the north and, the, and of course, Norwegian security. So sharing a border with Russia um, in the far north uh, up by the Barents Sea makes Norway vulnerable, of course, if, if uh, things you know, escalate, um, if something triggers NATO-Russia relations. And especially thinking about how Russia have their um, northern military district and their northern fleet very close to the Norwegian border where they many of their most potent you know submarines um, strategic asset for example their second strike capability with strategic submarines are located so Norway would always given this uh, proximity to Russia and its geographic location be you know a very rel uh, important neighbor country for Russia and and now with these um, times of uncertainty, uh, one has to, you know, be prepared. And um, I think uh, today uh, there's a new sense of uh, realism in uh, that uh, we have to be prepared. Um, the Norwegian Armed Forces, NATO has to actually be ready to operate in, in this part of the world, which is demanding. And um, after having had, you know, the 90s, the uh, early 2000s, uh, focused on global war and terror, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. to sort of like recalibrate, focusing more on uh, territorial defense of NATO. That's that's a new task which needs to <laughs> to be moved forward. Yeah, actually, that feeds really well to the next question, which is, you know, as your Norway borders Russia, so that's already your concern, you know, it, uh, if Sweden and Finland, who are looking for, you know, NATO session, if they do join NATO, that's only going to increase the length of the border that NATO occupies, you know, which which is going to make um, the ability of other NATO forces to operate with, you know, those countries as well as improve its operations previously standing with Norway. It's going to make it very important. But as you mentioned um, in, in a number of these pieces and just now, there's a lot of challenges to operating specifically in that mm -hmm. environment. And there are. Uh, Within those challenges, though, some of those NATO forces, you know, to include the United States, as you noted, which have been optimized for operations in a maybe not a it's not a nicer environment per se. You know, the desert is not a nice place, but 
very different set of environmental challenges uh, for operating up in the high north. So could you could you describe maybe what some of those challenges are and sort of where you see that that uh, that gap between you know, sort of current NATO and United States capability and what they would need to get to to operate effectively there? Sure. So uh, just before I do that, let me also comment on the NATO expansion, Sweden, Finland, uh, uh, that you raised. So I think uh, I think it's very likely that uh, those two countries will you know join. Um, exactly when uh, it's a broader political question, of course, that mm -hmm. needs to be solved. However, it, it is a very, very significant change uh, compared to what we have had uh, in the northern flank uh, since the origin of NATO, basically back in the 1940s. So uh, almost or maybe doubling the border towards Russia, of course, have a very, very uh, large strategic uh, importance. Um, Defense plans need to be rewritten. I think definitely it has a positive effect on stability and security in the north. Um, I think Sweden and Finland have uh, great assets that it, they can contribute with. But as you also mentioned, I mean the border gets much longer, more to protect. So, uh, so that's an interesting development that definitely you know would strengthen NATO's capabilities in the north in in the Arctic and. Um, so, so uh, to, the, to your second part here, so what needs to be done? I mean, I think we could say there's a lot of uh, different uh, eras that has to be, you know, updated and, and thought about. Uh, you have an individual level where the individual soldier or, you know, unit needs to be able to keep warm, uh, you know, protect their gear, um, their batteries to be able to operate with their electronic devices. I mean, there's a lot of specific challenges on a very like micro level here. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't able to you know, fix those very simple questions, it's usually mm -hmm. uh, making you unable to operate it whatsoever. So, so you have a lot of individual, individual challenges and, and the same goes with like more the operational level with the joint force trying to, you know, connect to different parts of it and how should we do this if there's uh, specific challenges with communication, for example, or satellite satellite coverage. Uh, there's um, there's examples where you just know one aren't prepared to, for snow or, you know, you have you don't can you can't uh, leave the, uh, the roads, for example, because it's snow everywhere or it's like mud. There's a lot of operational um, let's say battalion level and brigade level challenges that are very unique when you have an Arctic climate. And, and of course you have the strategic picture where we're more like the policy level and, and the planners, the, the strategic thinkers need to, you know, actually start caring about, you know, how should we get in fuel? Uh, what about supply of food, water, uh, a whole lot of strategic issues that are not so easy because the distances are so long and, uh, having Russia there with very capable anti-access air denial systems, uh, submarines, et cetera, that could, you know, prevent NATO for to, to resupply and, and get personnel and, uh, and hardware over. That's, it, it has a lot of, you know, implications to be able to operate there for with your full strength. And, and NATO is not there today. Yeah, I noted one of the, the, the things you noted was the, the infrastructure, you know, getting past the environmentals of, mm. yeah, it's cold and it's extremely cold and it's going to impact everything, like you said, from the hum, human performance to equipment performance, but not a lot of infrastructure to either 
to, to get stuff there or to move it sort of across mm. that theater. Um, definitely something that you need to practice. And if we haven't practiced it, then that's going to be a tough challenge when, mm. you know, if the day comes and we have to do it for in an actual operation. I think in practice, often um, large allied units in, uh, let's say, northern Norway during winter right now are pretty much bound to the rail, to the road system. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe houses with heating, the moment you have to, you know, go beyond the roading, road systems and uh, infrastructure with houses and electricity, uh, <laughs> you need some skills and, you know, special setups and uh, that's not necessarily in place now. So, so that's just like one very simple example of, you know, things that need to be prepared for and improved. Yeah. Um, so looking at the sort of the Russian posture up there now, uh, you, know, you mentioned that there's the, the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. It has caused uh, significant degradation to some of the ground forces that they pulled out of there. You know, so mm. a lot of the, you know, whether it's naval infantry or mechanized or, uh, or you know, airborne air assault type units, they've been pulled out, pulled out of where they're based up in the north, you know, flung into Ukraine. And uh, a, a lot of them are in, sort of in tatters, mm. you know, at this point. So the, the ground, the ground piece is definitely degraded. But as you just noted now, and in some of these articles here as well, their, their naval and aviation capabilities still remain strong to include, you know, submarine, which has always been a uh, sort of a strong point for them. So you noted um, in one of the pieces that the likelihood, because of the lot, you know, lack of degraded or their degraded ground forces, but other capabilities still there, we're likely to see um, Russian hybrid operations up in that area as a preferred method for them to, uh, you know, contest, to, to challenge, and to otherwise sort of interfere in a way that their ground forces are not really able to do anymore. So what are some of these hybrid operations that you know, Norway and the rest of NATO and, you know, potentially Sweden, Finland need to be be watchful for. And what can both NATO and the non currently non-NATO northern countries do to counter Russian hybrid warfare in the high north? Sure. So um, actually, the Washington Post yesterday, Sunday 15th, I guess, they had an article about uh, 200 and 200 motorized rifle brigades uh, conditions now after being, you know, uh, destroyed partly in, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very telling, you know, how how severe the damages has been. And um, yeah, so so I, I read that uh, yesterday with great interest. And um, and some of <clears throat> what you <clears throat> uh, argue here is that uh, with a weakened uh, military uh, land capability i mean what kind of threats can we see in the arctic uh, a land invasion is very unlikely and together with a colleague uh, colin wall at the csis we are writing an information brief these days on that topic where we also look into the the possibility of you know an increased like say hybrid threats scenario where you have not necessarily clear-cut threats that could be directly uh, attributed to Russia, but that are highly likely, perhaps, and uh, where it could be, for example, drones or sabotage, etc. And in the situation where uh, tensions are high, um, lack of traditional military capabilities, I think it's likely that Russia would, you know, explore that blurred area between peace and war to a degree, try to reach their political goal, while not necessarily triggering triggering uh, 
an Article 5 scenario with mm -hmm. NATO. That's sort of like the core argument for for what is uh, a hybrid threat or hybrid warfare or hybrid influence, etc. So um, we've in Norway uh, recently had quite a few uh, episodes where, for example, Russians have flight drones and been arrested. There's also been people arrested for espionage, etc. And, and I would say it's a pattern where one can see, uh, yeah, a greater pressure perhaps on Russia's allies uh, in the situation with greater tensions where Russia don't have capacity or interest or maybe uh, any intentions to, to, to deepen the conflict with NATO or there's not like a, a conflict, now it's more like a political conflict, of course, but to, to sort of like uh, push uh, on those buttons, they know they'll you know get a, a, a pretty clear rep reply to it. But when they are like exploring more less defined borders, for example, I, I didn't mention jamming or GPS systems. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of like methods you could perhaps try to create a narrative, partly reaching goals, um, try to destabilize maybe. Uh, so distrust to democracy as an institution, right? I mean, there's a lot of eras where one have seen likely influence campaigns from Russia, for example, and and in the current security climate, I think definitely that is uh, one area one should be aware of that could be beefed up <clears throat> and where one has to be uh, on the alert and be ready for, for new threat scenarios. And, yeah. So what are, what are some options for countering that? Like, for example, you just mentioned like the influence campaigns mm. going after, you know, legitimacy, the democratic process, um, you know, from from the, the Norwegian perspective, you know, has has have those operations been attempted? And if so, what what sort of the, the government response been to try and push that back? Mm. So I think um, I think it has been a process now where just to be aware of it has been very important. Um, after the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, it was a new level of sort of awareness that gradually uh, spread, let's say, among decision makers on the policy level, uh, let's say, in Minister of Defense, Foreign Affairs, etc. However, uh, in these days, I think also within the broader public uh, and in the population, there's a new sense of uh, realism in uncertainties of our time, where you know the clear-cut um, division between peace and war seems to be a little bit uh, outdated in a way. Uh, there's obviously events that aren't really fitting here. Uh, for example, I mean, the sabotage from the North Stream 1 and yeah. 2. I mean, what kind of, what what is that? I mean, even though there's no uh, clear evidence of, you know, a specific actor, this is obviously, well, this looks very obviously to be, you know, an intended, an intended uh, event, which definitely needs some very, capable tools to, to be successful to execute yeah, that there's, operation. There's only so, so many nations out there who yeah. could pull. So army is, is likely to think about state actors, etc. So so I think I think with the current security climate, current events, there's a, it's a broader sort of like awareness that these type of threats are real. So so one thing the government or you know the yeah the appropriate agencies should do is probably to to spread information to counter you know misinformation um try to um, go after you know false claims or 
uh, um, planted uh, facts, etc. So, um, uh, and also maybe, for example, utilize um, uh, the home guard. Uh, we have had episodes now where the home guard has been uh, mobilized for for prolonged time to try mm -hmm. to you know protect uh, gas and oil installations on the coast of Norway, for example, um, to sort of have a a network of, I don't know, uh, information, uh, also detection. I mean, how should you report if you see something uh, suspicious? Uh, how can you put this together? I mean, so, so the entire civil society, the Home Guard and the central government seems to sort of like operate a little bit more on the same page these days. And that, I think that's something of the most important thing they can do. Great, thank you. Um, so kind of, Moving on to like sort of larger, uh, larger perspective here is how does Norway see its role in the defense of the Arctic? You know, with within the especially within the context of the NATO alliance, because Norway's been a, a, a you know a, again that's been their front line since they joined the, the NATO alliance. And you know, from my own historical study, you know, the relationship with the Marine Corps in Norway, you know, that was de defending the high north, defending access to the Atlantic sea lanes or denying that access to then Soviet, you know, now Russian naval capabilities was a key part of that. So um, how does Norway see its role up there today? How can other NATO countries and the United States contribute to that defense in the future? And then maybe if you could if you could talk about that as well in sort of the context of what you mentioned in a couple of articles here, which is the, uh, you know, under the Force Design 2030, you know, Marine Corps institutional change approach right now. The stand-in force has been a uh, sort of a key term in that, right? Like, we're, how we're going to part of how we're going to do forces on twenty thirty is well, you know, if we're already there inside the opponent's you know weapon engagement zone, that's that's an advantageous place to be, right? Like, we're already we're already in where we want to be. But you mentioned in here that maybe another way to look at you know the forces on concept of stand-in force is Norway's already there, right? Your military, your home guard, all those assets are already there. Um, is does that become the stand-in force, and then what does that do to sort of change the context of Norway's role in defense of the Arctic? Mm. Yeah, good question. So um, I think I think um, the fact that we live in the Arctic, uh, we have a population that you know have kids, uh, grow up, uh, go skiing, are used to you know put on the flashlight during winter when you're out playing in the north. At least we did that when we lived in Tromsø with our kids in the weekends. So. Mm -hmm. So there's um, there's an advantage in just being there, having your normal life when it comes to also being able to operate there. So I think many of the the basic skills uh, related to you know let's say Norwegian culture, ability to to have fun and do sport and live outside that's that's of value when it comes to also you know leading military operations or participating in a military operation in that demanding climate and. Uh, I think the Scandinavian countries, when it comes to having, you know, lots of people with those skills or like uh, deeply integrated, uh, that could be shared. Um, I think one could think about, you know, liaison, uh, liaison arrangements, or not only, you know, exchange or visiting for exercises. There are a lot of ways those type of skills could be utilized. Um, when it comes to your good question or our point I've been writing about in some forthcoming uh, publications here on how could we utilize perhaps the local forces like the Norwegian Armed Forces 
potentially Swedish Finnish in the future as as like a stand-in force. Yeah, I think that's true. That's a that's a way to look at it. <clears throat> we are small, <clears throat> but uh, quite technically advanced, more or less the same level as many of the American uh, units with like very high tech, uh, top notch uh, investments at least. Um, and uh, to try to seamlessly operate together on exercises and, uh, you know, uh, during peacetime in uh, control forms, uh, trying to work on the problems, perhaps with communication, uh, crypto issues. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that needs to be solved. But uh, to have um, an ambition of uh, integrating, for example, Norwegian Armed Forces up north in a joint sort of multi-domain operation uh, fashion would definitely be, uh, I think, something we should work for and uh, which could be realistic, but uh, needs a lot of practice and the trust, of course, and partner training and exchange. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the way to go, definitely. Yeah, and I, I you know, I'm not trying to read a crystal ball, but I would probably, you know, given, you know, one, the Russian aggression in Ukraine, and then two, looking at, you know, they border a lot of other countries um, and, and the secure dynamic up there is changing. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if, you know, we start seeing more of that liaison and more of that, that joint training integration. Mm. And I, I know I'm trying to think if it was back earlier this summer or earlier this year, you know, but the Marine forces continue to rotate out through there and conduct exercises, you know, partly because we have all the equipment pre-stage, but also is, you know, part of the recognition that that's, uh, that's a, a key area, you know, mm. for a number, a number of reasons, you know, for security concerns, you know, given Russian aggression again, you know, where else might they want to go, you know, but also that area of the world, it's, it's opening up potentially for, you know, economic use, trade use, all these other things, which is going to only make it more important. So, uh, being able to operate out there is only going to increase in importance and probably see that down the road, but I'll just want one more note and then I'll, I'll wrap up here. But I thought your context of, you know, using the Norwegian forces, like think of them as the stand in force, um, that really cut to something that, and I know in the, in the Krulak center and some of the war games that we've run as well as, uh, I think more broadly across some areas inside the Marine Corps, um, in the context of force design is this understanding that, we are never going to be somewhere alone. There's mm -hmm. always going to, you know, everywhere we go, it's somebody else's home, right? Mm -hmm. They will have people there. They will have forces and capabilities there. And so we really need to, you know, one, we need to understand that, like, that, like simple data point, but it, it, it can get overlooked a lot. Like a lot of, we've tried to be better about this in our war games, but a lot of older war games, it's always like, you know, U.S. versus, you know, Russia or China and like, the other people who live there, right, whose home it is, are just simply not present on the map. Mm. So I think that that context of the stand-in force is really useful to help reinforce, like, somebody's already there first, right? The people who live there, whose mm. home this is, who this is the front line for. Um, so, and you, you brought up in the papers, like, access, like, if you're outside the ways, getting into it again, forcibly, mm. is going to be hard. Mm. But guess what? You already have forces inside the ways, your mm. partners, your allies in there. So and I was think about that. The fact that these are, you know, very long-term uh, allies. So Norway was one of the founding members of NATO, mm -hmm. and we've been cooperating, you know, for decades. And there's a lot of trust and personal relationships, and it, and also uh, similarities when it comes to equipment. For example, F-35s, and you know, very um, last sort of um, version 
fifth generation systems, etc., which makes it easier. And, and of course, let's say within um, anti-submarine warfare, the, uh, the British, Norwegian, American cooperation uh, seems to be developing pretty good with the P8s. So I think there's a lot of potential also on the, for example, land side here mm-hmm. and the US Marines. And uh, the US Marines will probably not be, you know, a, a major landbound fighting force in the future high north in Europe. I mean, you have a literal focus with Force 2030. Maybe the US Army will be more important. But to have the Marines there in the literal regions, you know, on the shores and connecting the joint force to the theaters, that would be highly, highly, highly relevant. And, um, and definitely uh, Norway has a, has a long time and, you know, uh, with very good relationship both ways, uh, should definitely, you know, be able to have that role in the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, given that longstanding relationship, there's a very firm and deep foundation for that cooperation. Because I remember when uh, when the Norwegian ambassador, the United States came last year for the mm. Arctic Symposium, I remember she threw out pictures of Norwegian F-35s, right? Mm. Like, are we, a lot of common capabilities, you know, mm. which should make that ability to, to operate and complement each other um, better. We just have to do it, right? Mm. Do those exactly. exercises. Okay, so that uh, kind of brings me to the end of my questions here, um, and we are getting up to the time we talked about. So any, any last comments or thoughts you'd like to share? Well, I'll just uh, thank you for, you know, the podcast, but also the time here at the Krulak Center, which has been great. Uh, we've had a good t- time here, and um, uh, I've been impressed by all the activities that uh, you're, you know, doing here around this uh, intellectual hub, which I think we could say the Krulak Center is. So it has been a pleasure to be here, and uh, yeah. Thank you for this opportunity and looking forward to the future. Yeah, well, great. Thank you, Dr. Vega. Thank you for your time as well. And, uh, you know, we do try and be an intellectual hub, but it has, it's, it's been, a, I think, a good nexus of where different threads can come together, you know, and create future opportunities. You know, and I, it's not, it's not coincidence that the, you know, yourself as a chair for Arctic, um, Arctic Security here at Marine Corps University, you know, they put you in one of our offices sort of just down the on the other side of the building here to me close. And it's not a coincidence that the visiting fellow from Swedish Defense University, you know, was put there so that we can, you know, I say we, but on behalf of Marine Corps University, create that hub so we can start looking at, you know, hey, maybe five years down the road, right? We're doing really strong, energetic NATO, Norway, bilateral, you know, joint training exercise, all that stuff. Um, it all has to start with sort of knowing who's who's out there and establishing some of those relationships. And so I think mm. that's why it's been it's been tremendously valuable to have, um, you know, yourself among the other folks who've been put here to start laying that groundwork uh, for uh, for future development. Mm. So. All right. Great. Again, yeah. thank you very much for your time. And you. I look forward to your remaining time here at Emory University. Thanks. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected education, preparation for the unexpected.